Starts, episode 512 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'd like to welcome you to the show by introducing you to a new band. The band is called Los Didos. They are a surf band based out of Bristol over in the UK. They just released their very first album. It's an EP, five songs. You can pick it up over at Bandcamp, Instagram, Facebook, or follow the link in the show notes. In fact, I'll make sure that all three of those links are in the show notes. You can pick up their self-titled EP right now through Bandcamp for five pounds. Go check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. And oh, by the way, the name of the song that we're playing right now, Panic Buy. I dig it. I think you're going to dig it too. I'll play it in its entirety at the end of the show. Big thanks to the band for letting us play their music here on the podcast. So this week, we are dipping into the 1970s with friend of the show, film historian, man of many commentaries, Troy Howarth. He and I are going to sit down. We're going to talk about a movie featuring two of the, you know what? I'm going to say it. They're patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. What movie did they do together in 1972 that we might talk about here? It's Horror Express. I had a great time talking with Troy the second time. You'll hear what that's about when you hear the conversation that I had with Troy. Now, before that, of course, we've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Did Famous Monsters of Filmland cover Horror Express? If they did, how did they cover it? And if not, well, what's Kenny going to talk about? Stay tuned, you're going to find out. And before that, we have the Beta Capsule Review. We are nearing the end of Ultra Q. Mark Matsky is going to bring us up to date, tell us what happened in episode 26 of that awesome Japanese series. I mean, when you start out a conversation about Ultra Q with the words Dynamite Joe, you know you're in for a good time. So that's coming up here too. Before we get to all that though, I want to let you know what's happening this weekend on Saturday in the Monster Kid Movie Club over at monsterkidmovie.club. It's our Twitch channel, so you can just look us up over at Twitch as well or go straight to twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Every Saturday, I host a big old block full of movies. Starting at 11 a.m. Pacific, there's a pre-show that's been curated by Scott Morris, friend of the show, one of the grand poobahs over at Disney Indiana. He does the pre-show, and then at noon Pacific, the movies start. And this weekend, it's all about the zombies. We're going to be showing... King of the Zombies, Revolt of the Zombies, Revenge of the Zombies, Teenage Zombies, and at least two other movies. Haven't decided yet. There's a lot to pick from, but it's Zombie Day on Saturday, so make sure you swing by the Twitch channel for all of that, plus an opportunity to win your very own Stuffed With Character, well, character, courtesy of Tracy Morris. I'm not going to tell you what character is going to be up for grabs this time around. You're just going to have to come by the show to find out. So that's happening on Saturday. Now, every Tuesday at the same place, we show science fiction movies. 3.30 p.m. Pacific time is when that pre-show starts. That runs about half an hour, and then the movies kick in at 4 o'clock. And this upcoming Tuesday, we're going to be showing the movies The Cosmic Man and Invasion from Inner Space. We're also going to be showing an episode of the BBC television series The Invisible Man. There's always a few fun little science-y type things that I throw in there as well. And it always wraps up with a conversation with my friend Jeff Pullier when we start talk, where we talk about Star Trek. So come back for that on Tuesday. 
trying to think if there's anything else coming up between now and the next episode. I don't think there is, so why don't we go ahead and get on to the rest of this week's episode. Here we go. Conan Doyle's classic masterpiece of mystery, suspense, and horror, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Some revolting sacrificial rite has been performed. What depth a human being can sink to. What human being could have done this? That is precisely what I intend to find out. Be so certain that somebody took one of the bishop's spiders and deliberately placed it in Sir Henry's room. That it wasn't in the luggage he brought from South Africa. Elementary, my dear Watson. There are no tarantulas in South Africa. What do you want me to do? Identify anything I may find. Strange things are to be found on the moor. Like this, for instance. Why? You thought it was going to be easy, didn't you? Didn't you? You won't be the first of your family who thought that. And you won't be the first to die because of it. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Dynamite Joe is a charismatic boxer rising rapidly through the ranks and attracting hordes of fans. Scores of school-aged children even root for him. But one week before his world championship bout, he goes missing. That is, until the eagle-eyed pilot June Manjame recognizes a familiar face hidden beneath clown makeup at a seaside resort show. That's the setup to Blaze of Glory, 
the 26th episode of Ultra Q, which made its debut broadcast on the 26th day of June, 1966. And I haven't even mentioned Peter yet. Peter is an amphibious creature that Dynamite Joe keeps as a pet, but there's more to it than that. The boxer believes that Peter communicates with him, specifically predictions regarding his boxing matches. Apparently, Peter has accurately predicted the round in which Dynamite Joe will win each bout, until the World Championship. And that's not the only surprise up Peter's slippery sleeve. Coming so near the end of the series, this is an offbeat episode, and that's saying something. This is, after all, the unbalanced world of Ultra Q. But there are a number of qualities that make this a quintessentially Japanese half hour of entertainment. Meaning, there is self-consciously creative cinematography, a blending of popular genres, in this case, special effects meets a sports hero story, and there's plenty of ambiguity in the plot and its outcome. Now fans of Ultraman will probably tell you to keep your eyes peeled for Peter. His suit, in a considerably altered form, will reappear in episode 6 of that series, where the creature is rechristened Gesera, in yet another example of Tsuburaya Productions' resourcefulness in its early years. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. See the top double thrill, double chill motion picture program of the year. Curse of the Werewolf in color. The harrowing story of the legendary half-man, half-wolf. His evil beast blood demanded he kill, kill, kill. Plus, The Shadow of the Cat, a shocking adventure into murder and psychotic fear. Two terrifying hits together. Don't miss them. Hello there, Monster Kid Radio Hits. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Horror Express. Today's movie was covered in FM 112 from December of 1974. It was a four-page, four-photo article. Let's listen to the introduction. No horror film, say the producers, is complete without the two masters of the medium. 
Had this quote been made 35 years ago, we know they could only have been referring to those titans of terror, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Before that, in the era of the silence, such horror greats as Lon Chaney Sr., Conrad Veidt, and Paul Wegener stood alone. Their box office draw, their outstanding performances, needed no co-star to enmesh audiences in their machinations. Today, certainly Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing can carry a picture on their own merits, but we fans are quick to admit it's even more fun if their talents are combined. And combined they are in the Scotia International release, produced and directed by Gene Martin, Horror Express. What's more, Martin wrote the script, a triple threat man, a la Orison Welles. The article continues with a synopsis. Let's hear a horror highlight. He is attacked by a vicious beast. Huge, hairy, horrifying. Mirov, hearing the doctor's screams, rushes to his rescue, fires a nervous shot at the retreating creature, kills it. But the horror does not end there. In fact, it has just begun. Eventually, Mirov wakens to the horrible realization that in some mysterious fashion, the attributes and powers of the strange beast have been transferred to him. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. The two most terrific names in screen evil. Together in one shock show. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. Your ticket entitles you to be frightened out of your wits at no extra charge. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. In color, rated R. Egypt, 4,000 years ago. A land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, the Living Dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. Was a high priest of the great god Karnak until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. Go now. Go and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. 
If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Listeners, last year we had a snafu. Something happened and I lost a recording with somebody and we were able to re-record that and get that episode out. Well, apparently that wasn't an isolated incident because it happened twice. This time with the movie Horror Express and with my friend Troy Howarth. Fortunately, he's willing to come back on and do it all over again. Troy, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. There will not be a... A third time, though, I can assure you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, whoa, okay, no pressure that I, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I think perhaps um, it's a conspiracy. The world doesn't want to hear about this movie, but we're going to make sure that it happens. I don't know why the world wouldn't want to hear about this movie. It's an excellent movie. It's one of my favorites. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee together is magic, no matter what film they're in, but this one's one of the best. Well, I'm, you know, we'll get into that more, obviously, as we go along. It's my favorite. I don't know if I'd say it's the best. You know, slightly different uh, semantics there, I guess. You know, people could argue that Dracula is a better film, and perhaps it is. But I think this one's the most fun, and a big part of that is this is the only one of all the movies they did together where they really have equal footing and really get an opportunity to really play off each other for the duration of the movie. So it's a real treat. Yeah, I mean, they're on the same side, and that does it for me. You know, and I love it. I love it. But we'll, we'll talk about the movie. We'll talk about that. Troy, I want to catch up with you. What's been going on with you? Uh, how many more books have you written since the last time we've talked? Uh, <laughs> boy, that's a good question. I Well, I've had two come out since then, I guess. Uh, the uh, Assault on the System book about John Carpenter and uh, more recently Murder by Design, which is about Dario Argento. So I also have another book that was written, a comparatively rather small book about the movie Alice, Sweet Alice, which you may be familiar with. That's going to be coming out, I would imagine, within the next couple of months through Bear Manor. Yeah, uh, other than that, recording lots of commentaries and uh, just dealing with the real world horrors as is everybody. Although I have to say, not being a social person, the whole social distancing aspect for me is is just uh, another day. So, you know, I've been doing this for many years. For the most part, as a monster kid, I'm good. I've got my movies, you know, I've got my Blu-rays, my DVDs, my internet. I'm good. It's the conventions and the getting together with people to celebrate these things that I'm missing the most right now. You know, I definitely enjoyed them myself. And I know they have been trying to hold them, uh, you know, and I can understand the temptation, but I hope that people are smart and just kind of, Give it time. We will get back to normal eventually, whatever normal may be. You know, Ron did send an email out not too long ago about what's going on with the summer monster bash and everything. And yeah, it's just, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer, folks, but but it'll happen. It'll happen. And maybe I'll be able to meet Troy again in person and, and actually sit down and chat and hang with him for a few more minutes than normal. <laughs> You never know. You are a busy dude, dude. Monster Bash, you are running back and forth. And I mean, you're just doing it all in one day, it seems like. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I like to try and fit in what I can when I'm there. Obviously, I'm there principally to sell the books, but it's kind of a self-defeating thing that you know, I keep telling myself I'm never going to do it again because between gas and accommodations and food and crucially buying expensive things that I really shouldn't be buying, I don't know that I really break even doing these things, but uh, I do enjoy going to them. And uh, it's one of those things, if I... I suppose conventions have been around since I was a little kid. I'm sure they have been. I just didn't know about them. If I had gone to something like Monster Bash when I was a little kid before I had copies of just about every movie in the world I could possibly want, I would have just lost my ever-loving mind, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah. So if you go to Monster Bash to sell the books and you buy something and spend a lot of money on something else while you're at Monster Bash, could you technically write it off as a business expense? 
Ah, that's an idea worth exploring. I might have to I'm just want, get you, know. you as my attorney. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, that would... <laughs> I'm not pitching for that job, man. I No. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you've been doing a lot of commentary tracks. What's the most recent one that people can hear right now that's, that's out there in the market? The most recent one that came out would have been for a film noir movie from the 40s called The Suspect with uh, Charles Lawton and Henry Danielle and a really, really fine period set noir film directed by Robert Siobhanak, who, of course, also directed a Monster Kid favorite, namely Son of Dracula. So it has that kind of mood and atmosphere to it. I suppose that's the most recent one that I've done that's been out, although I've recorded a number for movies I'm not at liberty to talk about just yet because they haven't been announced. You know, I've had you on the show enough that I know better than to ask what's coming up because I know you can't announce it yet. I've learned my lesson, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, under penalty of death, uh, some I really never never ever understood why some labels are very touchy about that because some labels are p- totally fine with it as long as their attitude is well, as long as you get it turned in. Once you turn it in to us, feel free to announce it, which makes sense because you can maybe build a little bit of uh, excitement assuming people care <laughs> some people maybe hear that you're on it and they say oh boy i'm not buying that now um but the uh some of the labels are no they're very very you know don't say a word about it until we announce it so you know i have to do what they want me to do i think people would want to know i it would help boost the excitement level for me i was doing some research and i forget which movie it was for but i was looking up something for a recording of mkr and uh I ended up on Wikipedia, which I know is not the end all be all, you know, double check your sources and all that, mm. but I'm going through it. And there's your name. Troy Howarth says this about this, but Hey, I know that guy. So yeah, I mean, you're legit. You're the real, you're on Wikipedia, dude. Oh, uh, well, the, the real deal. <laughs> there's a lot of misinformation on Wikipedia and I hope a minimum of it is my own. Um, but <laughs> it depends who you ask. We all make mistakes. Uh, I can, you know, I'm, I'm only too happy to admit when I've made them. And people are only too happy to point them out. So <laughs> wow. they're out. It's definitely <laughs> true. Whenever you make one, they'll they'll tell you. I, re- I remember it's totally, you know, beside the point may not be of any interest. But I remember recording a commentary for a film. I won't say what it was in case anybody would get uh, you know embarrassed that I said this. But I referred kind of off the cuff to a particular movie. And I know what movie I was talking about. I knew what it was. But I screwed up the title ever so slightly. I said, you know, a particular name and it was a different name, that kind of a thing. And I realized my error later on and I I contacted the uh, label, the person I deal with at the label. And I said, hey, I said this instead of this. Do you want me to re-record it? He said, "Ah, don't worry about it. Nobody's going to notice. Wouldn't you know, a review came out and said, well, he referred to this movie by the wrong title. (laughs) So nothing gets past anybody. Welcome to the internet, my friend. It's true. Hey, you know, like I said, you're on Wikipedia. You're more legit than me. I've been trying to get MKR and myself on Wikipedia for years, and they, they keep deleting my entry. I don't know why. Something about not being able to put your own stuff up. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, anyway. Maybe that's a good thing in the sense that some people, if they went on there and wrote their own entries, they'd really play themselves up too much. I don't know. But, good point. But maybe that's the reasoning. I'm not really sure. I don't know. I don't think I have my <laughs> own entry because I don't think anybody's done that. But if you want to write one for me, feel free to do so. <laughs> hey, you know, we could we could do each other a favor here. I'll write one up for you, write one up for me, and then we'll, you know. Well, there you go. That's an idea. <laughs> we'll have to talk about it. Yeah, I'll have to figure out something of note that I've done to get listed on Wikipedia. But yeah, you know. Oh well, this is this this podcast is of note. It's something that people enjoy, especially now with so many people being stuck indoors. I'm sure a lot of people are very happy to be listening to you uh, on these long winter nights. Again, no pressure. Okay. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Troy, I do want to talk about Horror Express and all that, but there is something we do on every episode of Monster Kid Radio when I remember, uh, and that's playing a round of the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question on them? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get Monster Kids talking about their favorite subject, monster movies. You want to play around? Sure. The Classic Five! All right, card number one right off the top. Who's your favorite actor to play the Phantom of the Opera? Oh, scandalous answer here i'm gonna go with herbert Lom. although no disrespect to cheney he's the iconic uh, phantom in terms of the look and he's magnificent but i i'm gonna give a shout out to herbert Lom. underrated performance when you talk about the phantom movies people don't talk about the hammer film nearly as much as they should i feel like so of course no shock to anybody did a commentary for the shout factory release so i'll give myself a little plug there <laughs> <laughs> Oh, card. Oh, okay. So this actually comes from the Universal Expansion deck. Uh, interesting that it comes up. Which movie do you prefer, Dracula's Daughter or the aforementioned Son of Dracula? That's tough. I, I'm going to go Son of Dracula just because it, it, it's a horror noir. And I think people, the noir purists, will, will not like me, me calling the film a noir. But it basically is. It has everything in it. The femme fatale and it's very fatalistic. It has the most devastating ending of any of the Universal horror films. It's such a downer. And, uh, you know, I, I may have my issues with Cheney's casting in it, but the film itself, I think, is wonderful. Loves Dracula's Daughter as well, but I'm going to give a slight edge to Son of Dracula. I see you marrying a corpse, living in a grave. The vampire can assume very many different forms at will. Sometimes it appears as a bat, and sometimes as a small cloud of swirling vapor. In this way, it can move unseen among its enemies. Son of Dracula, searing the screen with new terror in this weird tale of the living dead who rise from the grave at night to prey on unsuspecting victims. With Louise Albritton, Robert Page, Evelyn Ankers, Frank Craven, J. Edward Bromberg, and Lon Chaney as the new Count Dracula, you'll shudder at the screen's most fascinating woman vampire, luring men with cold beauty and the promise of immortality. Count Alucard is immortal. Through him, I attained immortality. Through me, you will do the same. We get evil and anchors playing against type in that, and I love that, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful film. All right, card number three from the Hammer expansion deck. Uh, what is your favorite Hammer film monster design? Oh, um, the werewolf, uh, Oliver Reed in Curse the Werewolf. I don't think Roy Ashton ever did a better werewolf design. And if you hear jingling in the background, that's my cat disagreeing with me, I guess. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that uh, werewolf design, it helped that Oliver Reed, you know, just had the right look to begin with. But the makeup, oh, that's that's the best, I think, of all the hammer makeup monster effects. I think uh, Oliver Reed going full throttle in his prime. I wouldn't want to be around that man during a full moon, no. whether we were making a movie or not. No. Uh, <laughs> I wish they had made more werewolf films. You know, I wish Hammer had done more in that, uh, that subgenre there. They, you know? they, they came close to doing one a movie called Demons of the Mind, which not too many people like, but I like it a lot. And uh, that film started as a werewolf movie. And you can, if you watch the film, you can kind of see where it, was intended to be because it does sort of deal with this sort of nocturnal series of, of murders, but they dropped the werewolf angle early on. I think it was down to the fact curse. The werewolf really wasn't a big money maker for them. So, you know, money talks. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. All right. Card number four. Oh, we're back to the universal deck Fritz or Igor. 
Oh, Igor, no question. Bela Lugosi, arguably his greatest performance. Wow. That's, uh, those are strong words, man. I stand by them. Although I love him as Dr. Vertigast as well in um, The Black Cat, of course, which is uh, one of the great films, I think. But uh, Igor, yeah, I love Fritz. Don't get me wrong. Fritz was wonderful. But I think uh, Bela Lugosi really, arguably for the only time in his career, really lost himself completely in a character where you don't even see that it's Bela Lugosi anymore. It's not just the makeup. It's the way he talks and everything else. It's really something. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not arguing. I'm not disagreeing. I just, you were very quick to that answer. It's like, usually I struggle when people ask me because I always go black cat versus, oh, yes. you know, whatever. But mm, no, he's fantastic as Igor, especially in Son of Frankenstein. He's a little watered down in the follow-up, but Son of Frankenstein, he's amazing. Yeah, he really is. Amazing. They they kind of gave him nicer teeth and everything and a, a slightly nicer mm-hmm. look in Ghost Frankenstein. Although I do love Ghost Frankenstein. I think it's one of the underrated oh. movies. Um, yeah, me, me too. I'm not, you know, I'm just. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Final card. This actually comes from the Monster Bash expansion deck. What is your favorite classic horror or suspense television series? There's a lot of them that I like. My favorite. Hmm. I know as soon as I give an answer, I'm going to think of something 15 minutes later that I like better. Uh, Favorite horror. Maybe (laughs) I might go Night Gallery. Maybe. Okay. And we'll go with that for now. I mean, Twilight Zone is the better show. I know that, but I, I really like Night Gallery, so I'm going to go with that. You know, I feel the same way. I think Twilight Zone has a lot more to say, mm-hmm. but Night Gallery just hits it for me. And I, and I know it was less Rod Serling having more control, whatever, but I love Night Gallery so much. Yeah, they had their duds on occasion. The little comic uh, vignettes that they did weren't always weren't, weren't very good uh, for the most part. There were a few duds here and there, but I'll tell you what, the best episodes really have something. You know, a Silent Snow, Secret Snow, Green Fingers, The Caterpillar, The Doll, uh, The Cemetery, uh, you know, so many really, really good ones. I mean, Twilight Zone was also on a lot longer, and there were a lot more of them, and we tend to forget there were some really lousy Twilight Zones, too, to tell you the truth, but Twilight Zone was the trailblazer, and it, yes, it's the one that has the greater sort of social conscience thing that's going on, but there's a little bit of that in Night Gallery as well. I mean, Rod Serling put that sort of stuff in where he could, so yeah. Oh, sure. I'm going to go with Night Gallery, I think. I love The Return of the Sorcerer. That's one oh, of my yes. absolute favorite Night Gallery episodes. Well, anytime you have Vincent Price involved in any, I mean... That's instantly going to elevate it, but that one's one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, that one's creepy. That was the second one he did. The first one was, I think, called Class of 1999, and that was good, mm-hmm. too, but you know, yeah. Return of the Sorcerer is, is really, really great. That was from the third season, and it was actually one of the few really good episodes of that season because that was the season where it all kind of went to pot a little bit, but, oh, that one's really good. Yeah, third season, especially when it went to syndication, they tried to stretch it out by adding episodes of the fifth, uh, uh, the six sixth sense, oh, yeah. which, in retrospect as somebody who came to it later, I'm glad they did because it introduced me to the sixth sense, which I then fell in love with. So I'm glad that happened, but I know Serling and company weren't all that happy about it. Yeah. Well, they also, they sort of padded out the episodes and things. Yeah. So some of the episodes really, they junk. They, they still have them on uh, the syndication versions are on Comet on the weekends and uh, yep. I'll watch them. I don't, I... I don't know why they had the house of drip blood on there the other weekend too. And I'm watching it. I'm just appalled by the things they're cutting just so they can make room for commercials. But I kept watching, <laughs> even though I have it on Blu-rays. I think sometimes there's just something about finding something on TV that's just kind of fun to just sit back and watch it that way, I guess. It's like finding one of those, you know, it's like the TV is speaking to me. I, I have all these movies. I have all the movies that Sven Gulli hosts. I have all the movies that common TV shows that I might be interested in. But if I'm flipping through channels and I see that it's on, 
Yeah, I'm stopping. Yeah, they had an amicus double bill. They had uh, the house get yeah. blood followed by um, the beast must die. And I was like, well, I know what I'm going to be watching, even though the you know again the house of your blood to fit it into a two hour time slot with all these commercials. They they got some really important scenes. I mean, anybody watching that movie for the first time would probably be like, this doesn't make any sense, but that's okay. You know, it was kind of fun for a Saturday or Sunday, whatever day it was. I think it was last weekend they ran them. So yeah, it, it, it never fails. See, this is why you and I need to spend more time together at these conventions. I think we have plenty to talk about, man. It's true. All right. Well, that was the classic five. Thanks for playing Troy. Why don't we talk about the film? For two million years in these subterranean caves, a creature of superhuman evil was entombed in a wall of ice, waiting to be free, waiting to live again. Travel with us on a journey into a world where nightmare becomes reality. Two million years ago, got onto that crate, killed the baggage man, and put him in there. Yes, I am. It's alive. It must be. Travel with us, if you dare, on the Horror Express. Horror Express, one of their best. I, I can't say enough about it. Well, yeah, there's a lot to be said about it, really. I mean, it was. The 17th, by my count, 17th movie that those two wonderful actors had done together. Now, that's including very early on, of course, Peter Cushing had a sizable supporting role in Hamlet, Lawrence Olivier film, and Christopher Lee sort of snuck onto the set and, and appeared as uh, you know a knight in armor in, in one sequence. So that one's in there, and also Moulin Rouge that they both did in the 50s for John Huston. But, um, you know, 17 out of... Uh, the grand total of uh, 21, I guess it was 21 or 22 films, depending on whether you count the uh, flesh and blood documentary about hammer that they narrated together. It was the last thing that Cushing ever did. Um, and that was the first time that they had been together and, you know, kind of in the same room really for quite a, a long time. But uh, One of the great screen teams. And it's funny because all the other films that they did together were made in England. That was largely down to the fact that Cushing wasn't really big on traveling. He tended to be something of a homebody. You know, he did a few things in the 50s outside of England, but, you know, until his wife died and then he basically was you know, taking any pretty much every job that came his way just to keep himself busy. He did more traveling then, but all their other films had been done in England. But this one, they go to Spain. And for the first time, I think really they were put into a project where it was, first of all, it was like it had been written for them because they're perfectly cast to type in this film. And also it gives them an opportunity finally to really play off of each other. You know, if you look at the earlier films that they did for Hammer, as much as I love those movies, they had very little screen time together and, and almost invariably, I mean, they were on opposite sides. They'd done Howl of the Baskervilles, of course, when they were both good guys, obviously Cushing was Holmes and uh, Christopher Lee sure. and Sir Henry. But for the most part, they were kind of adversaries. Uh, they reversed that a little bit in the Gorgon, where Christopher Lee is the kind of uh, savant figure. He's the Van Helsing type figure, whereas Cushing is playing a more conventional sort of frosty Christopher Lee part in that movie. But this is the first time that, you know, they really had an opportunity to really play off each other in a meaningful way throughout an entire film. Yeah, they've done it a couple of other times here and there. But this is the first time you're right, where they felt like they were on equal footing. The characters were 
as flushed out as each other. It really felt like we were watching a couple of old buddies getting together and making a movie together Mm -hmm. as opposed to having somebody on set for just a few days or whatever. And it it really carries a lot of the film for me. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the film, a lot of Lee's films. I've talked about this on many occasions, but a lot of his films, the reason that he made as many films as he did was he tended to do roles that were important, but small, uh, which meant that he doesn't really have a ton of screen time. I think if you cut together all of his scenes in all of the Dracula films, you're looking at about 20 minutes worth of material, which is pretty incredible when you think about it, when you think about the incredible presence that he had and the impression he made on audiences. But he very often had small but important roles in the case of this film. This is one of the movies he did where he's really he's in it the whole way through. And it's a large part. And it has a real character arc and he's a great deal of fun to watch in it. Um, pushing, of course, typically play larger parts, but nevertheless, here they are put together on the side uh, of the angels, as it were, uh, working together. Eventually they start off on, on kind of comically bad footing, but eventually they unite. They're just delightful to watch. There seems to be a little bit of rivalry between the two, but nothing too drastic, nothing that's going to get in the way of the movie itself. And, and I appreciated that. It wasn't, they weren't overly antagonistic toward each other. There's more of kind of like a, a bumbling frustration yeah. that they eventually get over when they realize that they're the two most capable, really, of trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it starts off, I mean, obviously, they're sort of scientific rivals. They're, they're both working in a similar field, albeit coming from different ends. And, you know, there is a great deal of humor in their interaction. And, uh, you know, Christopher Lee, I think in particular in this film, you know, he's my favorite actor. And he's, he's somebody that I, you know, never cease to enjoy watching. I think he tends to be a very underrated actor, but he had this image of being very sort of frosty and foreboding and a bit pompous. And what this film does, it's a great deal of fun to watch is he starts off in a very frosty and foreboding and pompous manner. He's very arrogant when the movie starts comically. so. Uh, but as the movie goes along, he has a wonderful scene where he's talking with uh, Sylvia Tortosa, who plays the countess uh, in, in the film, who's kind of a semi romantic interest for him. And uh, should be noted, Lee is at his most dashing in this film. He has, uh, you know, he, he becomes kind of a swashbuckling hero by the end of the film. So uh, he's he's definitely at his most sort of matinee idol leading man in this movie, and uh, which helps certainly in his interaction with this uh, with this actress playing the countess. But she kind of confronts him about his callous attitude about what's going on, you know, which is in a way kind of his fault. It's almost like when he hears himself say some of these things out loud, he becomes ashamed and he realizes that he's been a bit of a heel. And from that moment on, he becomes a great deal more approachable and human and sympathetic. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful performance for him and a great opportunity for him to have a character arc. Cushing's character doesn't really have that much of an arc. He's pretty steady throughout the movie, but he brings that kind of impish humor that he could bring to his roles, which is very humanizing as well. So Again, it's just it's terrific to see them really bouncing off of each other and having this opportunity to capitalize on their tremendous screen chemistry in a way that very, very rarely they had to do in other movies. And I, I love the moment where he does get called on how callous he's being. Oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't be so cold about this man dying. You know, just just I love that moment because you can see in just his face, mm-hmm. in his eyes, that he's he's recalculating how he's going to approach the rest of what's going on here. And I. I so good yeah so good he's a subtle actor and i think that mm-hmm. sometimes people don't appreciate him for that reason he has very expressive eyes if you pay attention to him he does these things with his eyes and and sometimes with the way he clenches his jaw and so forth just little things 
that kind of conveys that he's thinking. And it's something that a lot of actors don't really do on camera very well. But he's able to convey that sense of thought and an inner kind of conflict that's going on. There's a similar moment at the end of The Wicker Man, for example, where uh, Sergeant Howie calls him out in front of the entire group of people and says, you know, if this doesn't go the way you want, the next year it's going to be you that's going to be victimized. And he does that similar thing there where he realizes, well, yeah, you're probably right. It's very nice. It's very nice, subtle little touches. That was one of the reasons why early on doing things like The Curse of Frankenstein, which, of course, was the, the film that got him noticed for the first time. And then subsequently The Mummy as well are tremendously effective because he's very effective acting with his eyes and with body language and so forth he could say it's a cliche but it's true he could say a lot more with his eyes than many actors could say with a full page of dialogue that all said my favorite line in this movie comes from Cushing. oh and you got to know what it is of course of course <laughs> everybody and um you know a lot of people get it wrong and i hope i'm not going to get it wrong too but i uh, the scene where inspector mirov is actually by this point, he's been possessed by the uh, the creature, the spirit that is, uh, you know, loose on the train, so to speak. And he comes in, uh, I think, basically to try and uh, off Christopher Lee's character. But Cushing shows up and he finds out that they've kind of united and they're trying to figure out what's going on and offer up a solution. And uh, he says, uh, but what if one of you is the monster? And Cushing says, monster? We're British, you know. I love that moment. So I just, it just, <laughs> every time I watch this movie and I see this, I, I just, I chuckle and I know what's coming and I've been waiting for it. And I just, I love it. No, it's great. There's a lot of great, great dialogue in the film. And it's a funny thing about the film, of course, because, you know, being a uh, Spanish British production, a, a lot of the Euro horror films aren't necessarily noted for their sparkling dialogue, which sometimes comes down to the dubbing and so forth. But sure, uh, sure. You know, in this case, the dialogue is absolutely first rate. And uh, yes, this is a, a Spanish film with a great deal of revoicing. There's some familiar sort of uh, vocal performers on the soundtrack of this film. If you watch enough of these movies, you'll you'll recognize different voices for different actors and so forth. But of course, crucially, the key characters of Cushing Lee and of course, later on, Telly Savalas shows up. They all provide their own voices. So, but a great deal of it is, is revoiced by other people. And, uh, but it works really, really well. And there's some just tremendous lines of dialogue that I get a great deal of pleasure out of quoting and re-quoting many, many times again. I, don't think this movie would be nearly as uh, enjoyable for me to watch if they had dubbed Lee Cushing or uh, Savalas. No. I mean, I, I know Lee had been dubbed uh, in, in other things. I think it was a Sherlock Holmes film, didn't they redub his voice? And it doesn't sound anything like him. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, their voices alone, and even Savalas, who doesn't have the Russian accent, no. who doesn't have any of that no. going on, his voice brings so much oomph. Man. Ah, we've He's got lots great. of innocent monks. <laughs> You want to talk quotable. Once Telly comes on, who loves you, baby? He's just, uh, he's a quote machine the whole way through. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> yeah, he, he sounds about as Russian as Sean Connery does in uh, The Hunt for Red October, but it doesn't matter. He just brings such gusto to it. So, yeah, early on when Lee, not long after he had done Dracula and, and some of the other early Hammer films, he did his first film in Italy, which is known over here as Uncle Was a Vampire. And um, because of a variety of reasons if you didn't have it in your contract that you had to provide your own dubbing or if you didn't belong to a dubbing union or whatever or if you were off busy doing another film and you know you couldn't be there when they were doing the dubbing 
a whole slew of different reasons. Um, his first few Italian and, and uh, German films uh, that were dubbed into English were dubbed by other actors. Um, but beginning with, I think it was um, Castle of the Living Dead, uh, or maybe it was Terror in the Crypt. Actually, I think it was Terror in the Crypt was the first one of his Italian movies where he actually did dub his role into English. He made it part of his contract. So fortunately, um, that had already been placed by a decade by the time they came to make this movie. It wasn't anything other than just business, you know, to, to do that, you know, shoot their scenes, get them out, and then send it off to some dubbing studio to get done, which is going to be a lot cheaper than flying Lee to wherever they're going to do it. So I, I, I get that. But, man, it's Lee. How do you dub Lee? You can't dub Lee? Come on. Yeah, I don't think Cushing ever had that happen because, again, he spent most of his career in England. And, uh, mm-hmm. well, he started off in Hollywood, technically, but then in England. And uh, he did do various um, kind of movies in, in Spain and uh uh, Germany and even Greece later on, but uh, in all those cases, that's his own voice. So I don't think he was ever actually revoiced on anything uh, as far as an English track was concerned, which is, you know, again, a big plus. Definitely. So I've watched this movie a lot, maybe not as much as you, uh, but I watch this movie a lot. And while I watch it again this morning, and this happens when I watch movies over and over and over again, I find myself focusing on some of the less prominent. Uh, elements of the movie. I mean, it's easy to get caught up in Lee and Cushing. It really is. But you end up watching these movies over and over and over again, and I start wondering about some of these other characters and these other performers mm. and and the interactions back and forth between, say, um, Dr. Wells and Miss Jones. <laughs> um, you know, and, and not just the, well, your age, I can see why you need help. You know, not, not that. I mean, which is wonderful. Is. Don't get me wrong. I love that. But I want to know more about Miss Jones now. You know, I want to know more about Helga Linnae's character, Natasha. Mm-hmm. I really want to know more about the Countess, partly because she's, and I'm a guy, I'm sorry, listeners, she's gorgeous. Mm. But <laughs> I'd like to know more about that story, too, you know? Yeah, well, no argument there. I mean, Silvia Tortosa plays that character. Yeah, very, um, very beautiful woman and a good actress, too. She does a very good job in the film. Oh, yeah. Um, you'd mentioned Miss Jones. Uh, funnily enough, that was a, an American actress, uh, the name of uh, Alice Reinhardt. Whether that's her own voice on the soundtrack or not, I do not know. I'm sure I've seen her on other things. Matter of fact, I know I've seen her on other things because she showed up uh, doing guest parts on shows that I've watched. So I, I, she popped up on I Dream of Genie. She popped up on Get Smart. She popped up on Mission Impossible. Um, Donna Reed show, even <laughs> believe it or not, back in the eighties, I was a little kid. Nick at night, I, I watched the Donna hey. Reed show. Um, hey man, I was a Nick at night kid too. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I don't know if I'd like it now, but I enjoyed it back then. So I know I've seen yep. her in other things, but I'm damned if I could tell you what she did in those in those things and what she really sounded like. But uh, Horror Express was, in point of fact, one of her very last films, although she made it all the way into the nineteen nineties, but. Uh, you know, sometimes the casting on some of these films, especially when you're dealing with European films like this, it's kind of a mystery how certain people get involved. And I'm not entirely sure. Maybe she had a little bit of a European vacation during that time and was just at the right place at the right time. But um, she's a lot of fun in the film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, she did a lot of television. So I'm sure I've seen her a lot more than I'm aware of. And a couple of years ago, I, I was on a real Mission Impossible kick mm-hmm. and just binged the entire series. So I know I saw her in at least one episode of that. So yeah, just, but just the, the character itself, how does she know the doctor? How long has their relationship mm-hmm. gone back? I just, I want to know those things. And I think that that speaks to the quality of this film is that even though it'd be real easy to just spotlight Leon Cushing and then Savalas when he comes in, mm-hmm. all the other characters are still interesting. 
I still want to hang out with these guys. Oh, yeah. Maybe not the monk. He's a jerk. Well, but you know, <laughs> I want to hang out with the rest of them and learn more about them. Or Pujardo. Yes, he just can't catch a break. But uh, <laughs> it's true. No, they're they're good. And, and they're not – it's not that they're necessarily super deep characters because they're really not. But what they are is they're quirky and interesting and there's a kind of likability to them. And uh, the actors – all I think do a really good job. I don't think anybody really lets this movie down. I think everybody really, you know, really brings their A game to it. And uh, yeah, Lee and Cushing are definitely the star attraction. Although, of course, when Telly Spaws became even bigger and more popular, you know, shortly after this, when uh, Kojak, I mean, the, the Marcus Nelson murders came out in March of 1973, not long after this film was uh, initially released um, in Spain and the series Kojak proper. It's really started in October of 1973. So it wasn't long after this that Savalas kind of shot through the stratosphere and became an even bigger star name. And it's not surprising to find videos and, uh, you know, re-release posters and so forth where he's listed as the star, which would be a little jarring if you pop this movie in expecting it to be a Telly Savalas movie and you get about, you know, 80 or so minutes into it, or you know, at least 70 or so minutes into it, and then all of a sudden, where's Telly Savalas? doesn't show up until the very end. He's worth waiting for, though. When he shows up, you're like, oh, yeah, he's in this, too. I forgot. <laughs> no, and, and it's he actually comes into it right when he needs to, because the movie is paced fantastically well. But by virtue of the fact that it is a very confined and claustrophobic movie, and there is a kind of repetitious nature to the plot after a certain point, it does turn into one scene after another of people being trapped alone with the creature and being taken over and it sort of body hops, you know, from, from person to person, which in many respects, I'm sure that the screenwriters were influenced, if not by the Howard Hawks uh, version of the thing from 1951, I'm sure that they were thinking somewhat of the John W. Campbell story from 1938, who goes there, which inspired it. And of course was, you know, adapted much more faithfully by um, the John Carpenter film in 1982. Mm -hmm. So it's very much like the thing in many respects, but, um, you know, there there is a kind of sameness that could hurt the film after a certain point. So Savalas shows up just when it's starting to slow down a little bit, and he just shoots it right back into the stratosphere. So I think they were very smart to keep him until the end because he's like a nice little surprise at the end of the film. This uh, wonderfully over-the-top, ebullient performance from Savalas, who is not going for subtle at all, and he doesn't need to. He's playing the character absolutely perfectly, and he's delightful to watch in the film, whether he's, um, you know, sort of ranting and raving about, I know about telegraph, little papa, you know, or, or coming onto <laughs> the train and calling everybody peasants and, and all that stuff. It's just, it's delightful, but you know, he's not in it for all that long, but he makes every moment count. It's the old, um, cliche about actors. There are no small parts, only small actors. His interaction with the American. That's <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> he, he does everything short of saying, Oh, I'll protect you. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just with her, the way he's treating her. I mean, it's still, I'm just laughing and giggling over here because I'm having a good time just remembering it, even though I just, I just watched it like an hour ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. I know he's, it's great. And he has great dialogue to work with too, of course. And you can tell he's having fun with, I wouldn't be surprised if he was ad-libbing a little bit. This film uh, was shot December of 1971 into January of 1972. Uh, which was about a month after Cushing and Lee had reunited at Hammer for Dracula 80 in 1972. Now, prior to this, this film's director, Eugenio Martin, had directed Savalas in Pancho Villa, uh, which shot from August until October of 1971. So he and Savalas obviously already had a good rapport going, and that's no doubt how he was talked into doing this this little part. You know, so 
he almost feels like he's coming in from a different film, but not in a bad way. He definitely gives it a shot of energy that's needed at the end, a great deal of humor. And as I mentioned, not long after this, Kojak becomes a big pop cultural phenomenon. Um, but in between this movie and doing that, he also did a movie with Mario Bava called Lisa and the Devil, which was shot in September to November of 1972. So I know that on Lisa and the Devil, he was given a certain amount of freedom to ad lib and uh, bring certain humorous touches to that character. Uh, and I'm quite sure that was probably the case here as well. I'm sure that he he colored that char- character in pretty well. Again, the sea internet, so who knows how true it is. But I think I've read this elsewhere as well, and you would know, I'm sure. Uh, Cushing showed up to set, but tried to back out of the film. Yeah, what had happened? Had to talk him back into it. Yeah, what had happened was in January, I believe it was January 14th of 71, uh, his wife had passed away, and he was absolutely devastated by this. Um, actually, had attempted to commit suicide. Um, talked himself out of that. And he'd never really been a before that a particularly religious man, but he became deeply religious after this. A um, whole lot of theories as to why that is. But regardless, um, he was not in a good place psychologically. And it's an aspect of his career that's kind of fascinating because by the time you get to something like Star Wars a few years later, which of course was a huge juggernaut, you might find yourself wondering, why did he not do much of any good after 1977? Most of his films were not really worthy of his, of his talents. Um, of course, he had been offered Halloween, but uh, his agents had turned it down. Uh, so, you know, Donald Pleasance ended up doing it. Of course, Christopher Lee turned it down, too, because he was trying to go away from horror films. But I, I suspect a big part of the reason that he wasn't getting the kinds of really meaty roles that he deserved in in bigger films was quite frankly, I think because he was so open and so honest about having had a nervous breakdown over his wife's death and that he had gone into a terrible depression that lasted for a number of years. I think quite frankly, that a lot of casting directors thought "Eh, he's too much of a wild card. We don't really want to take a chance on somebody who's got problems like that, which is unfortunate, but you know, kind of understandable at the same time. So he, was certainly not in a good place when he came to do this movie. He had been offered the script. He had accepted it. Um, movie got started in uh, around the middle of December of 72. Christopher Lee had already been shooting for a week when Cushing showed up. And apparently what happened was he showed up and he went to the producer straight away and said, look, the only reason I came here was because I promised that I was going to come, but I can't do it. It's going to be the holidays. I'm just not in a good place for this. I'm, I'm going home. And uh, the producer went to Christopher Lee and said, look, you're his friend. You know, you've got to do something. He's he's walking. So at least don't worry about it. And uh, after having a conversation with him where they didn't even talk about the movie, they didn't even talk about anything that was going on. They just sort of laughed and had a good time um, and ended with, with Lee saying, I'll see you on the set tomorrow. And he stuck around. Uh, as a matter of fact, spent Christmas of that year because they were shooting over Christmas holiday with Lee and his wife and daughter. So. Uh, they helped to make him feel less alone and less vulnerable during a really very, I think, very unpleasant time in his life. And it just speaks to their friendship. I mean, their deep friendship and respect for one another. That's just, just amazing to hear. Yeah, I mean, there is a tendency sometimes to romanticize their relationship, to think that they, like, hung out all the time and, you know, went to barbecues together and things. It certainly wasn't the case. <laughs> Lee was always working. He was a workaholic. He was always going from mm-hmm. one country to another, Cushing. You know, after a certain point, yeah, he was doing some traveling, but he was spending a lot of time 
um, by the sea. He lived in Whitstable. Um, Lee, when he was living in England, lived in London. This was not a convenient location for them to get together. So they would talk on the phone, uh, you know, famous stories about them quoting Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck and, you know, things like that, cartoons on the phone to each other, you know, random, just kind of goofy phone calls that friends make to each other. Uh, they, they certainly weren't, you know, hanging out on the weekends and, and doing stuff like that, but uh, they, they respected each other immensely. And in fact, Lee told a funny story about this that kind of illustrated um, his respect for Cushing that at one point early on in the filming, Lee, <laughs> Lee was not shy about complaining when something wasn't going the way he liked it to be. If he didn't like something, he, he didn't hold it in. <laughs> so he was um, complaining at one point about the food to Cushing. Uh, now Cushing by this point, was skin and bones. You can see it in the film. He looked he looked older than he was. As a matter of fact, on Dracula 80, 1972, he was originally supposed to play Stephanie Beecham's father. But when they realized how gaunt and how much older he looked, they changed it to grandfather. So that tells you something that you know, had changed in him within the space of a year. Cushing's in the uh, dressing room. And as usual, he's just eating an apple and a piece of cheese. You know, he's content with that. Lee's ranting and raving about the food. Oh, this food is terrible. It's awful. And Cushing just said rather chilly, but you know, straight to the point, well, there's no good belly aching about it. And Lee said he, he might as well have just, you know, yelled at me and called me a terrible name. I felt so terrible. <laughs> he said, and I stopped <laughs> complaining. So I think it only took a word from Cushing to sort of put Lee in his place a little bit. Um, you know, if he ever was getting a little carried away about something. I mean, I, I can imagine that almost just having watched them so many times over the years and in that documentary, Flesh and Blood, I can just imagine that sequence playing out in my mind. Just there's no good just it's just it's no good belly. Aching oh, man. <laughs> man. Well, he's right. Man. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. They deal with it, but, you know, they were they were different personalities. And I think that has a lot to do with the way that they're kind of viewed by a lot of the fans. And I think the fans sometimes are a little I think they're a little too touchy about Lee when it comes to, you know, his attitude towards some of the films that he made. You know, I, I think he had reasons to feel the way that he did. And, and uh, I never minded the fact that he was outspoken and that he's talked, you know, he, he didn't have any shyness about saying he liked this film. He didn't like that film or whatever. But some people, when they hear him saying some of the things that, and he did say things I didn't agree with. And he certainly made claims that I, I think were totally idiotic, but you know, I mean, it's not something you need to take to heart or look at him as being lesser than Cushing just because, well, he was arrogant or he was this or that. I don't think that's really true. I think people who knew him really well, and I never met him personally. Unfortunately, I never had the opportunity to meet him, but I do know a number of people who, who knew him fairly well um, said that in private life, he was actually very warm. He was very funny. Um, he was almost childlike when it came to things that he was into. He had certain hobbies that he was really just like gleefully childlike about, you know, apparently loved animals and uh, a good, good father and a devoted husband. So a lot of good things about the man that I think sometimes people overlook because, wow, he, he talked bad about the Dracula movies. Well, you know, look at it from an actor standpoint after a certain point that couldn't have been terribly rewarding for him after a while, even though he's being paid very well for it. I think he was very self-conscious about his reputation in the British press because they tended to look down on those films. And I, I think he was trying very hard to establish a reputation for himself beyond those movies. Don't forget, when Cushing did Curse of Frankenstein, he'd already had a lot of success, uh, particularly on British television. He was a huge star over there and had done a lot of theater work and so forth. So he kind of had his moment in the sun um, and he wasn't necessarily thrilled 
about being typecast and doing horror movies early on. Uh, he actually had a lot of ambivalence about that in the beginning. He was kind of unsure about doing it. And he did actively in the early 60s try to break away from doing horror movies. Um, after Brides of Dracula, there's, there's kind of a break until he does movies like The Evil of Frankenstein and The Gorgon in 63, 64, where he's not really not doing horror films. And, and quite frankly, most of the movies he was doing weren't very good. Um, so I think he realized that, yeah, you know, this is where my bread's buttered and I'm just going to have to accept it. So, you know, they each handled it in different ways and they each had their own personality. And I think that, uh, again, who you prefer, I think, is sometimes down to which personality you can relate to a little bit better. I relate better to the Christopher Lee personality, I guess. So that tells you a little bit about me, I suppose. Well, suddenly I don't want to spend nearly as much time with you at a convention, Troy, if you're that. No, I'm just <laughs> possibly not. You wouldn't be alone. No, 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 no. I, I love them both. I love them both. I, I'm I'm more on Team Cushing than Lee, but I love them both. And and I don't care what Lee says about the Dracula movies. I love them all in varying degrees. It doesn't change how I view Christopher Lee as an actor. So I, I, I get it. I get it. There, there is somebody else that was involved in this film that I want to talk about before we wrap up. It would not be an episode of any podcast that I'm on if I don't bring up the music because I love the score in this. Mm. I'm a film score junkie. People know this. I, I'm surprised I waited this long in this episode to, to bring up the film score. Uh, this was John, is it Cassavis? Am I saying that right? I believe Cassavis. Cassavis. Okay, so this is his first feature film work. Uh, he would go on to do one of the Dracula films for, for Hammer and a number of other pieces, including television work, including Kojak, I think. Yeah. He was a friend with Tilly Savalas, wasn't he? Yeah, Savalas got him involved in a lot of things, including Kojak. Savalas, uh, of course, um, you know, being of, of Greek extraction, was particularly loyal to and fond of people in the Hollywood Greek community. So uh, that included Kikavis. He would reunite with uh, Christopher Lee, even on Airport 77. He did the score for that. He definitely did a phenomenal job on this. He did end up going on to do Kojak. Uh, he didn't do the initial music for Kojak, but he, he took over after a certain point. Worked in a lot of TV and things like that. But uh, yeah, as far as genre fans are concerned, I'm sure the two big scores are the two Christopher Lee Peter Cushing movies. That's Horror Express and the Satanic Rites of Dracula, which was the last of the Christopher Lee uh, Hammer Dracula movies. I feel like there needs to be more whistling in modern film scores. That whistling is just so eerie in this. It is just so unnerving. Yeah, it is. And it's very Ennio Morricone, uh, which I suspect oh, yeah. was, was definitely a, a big influence, of course. You know, Eugenio Martin had also done Spanish Westerns before this. And, you know, virtually everybody was making Westerns in Europe was influenced by Sergio Leone. Uh, Morricone was his composer. So it has kind of a Morricone vibe to it. But it's also it's its own thing. There was a soundtrack release of it, uh, which I believe is out of print at this point, although I'm given to understand that it wasn't actually the original film score. It was um, a, a subsequent session that Kavis, uh, uh orchestrated later on, so it's it's not quite complete, and it doesn't quite correspond with what we have in the film. Better than nothing, but I hope somebody at some point can put out the full score because uh, it's definitely one of my great favorites. Um, you know, Euro soundtracks of that period. It's, it's terrific. The whistling, very effective. You know, when um, the Count and Countess are sitting there talking to Bujardov and then they hear the whistling in the distance, you know, it's, it's very sort of weirdly poetic and creepy and uh, it definitely works really, really well. And it gives the movie a very distinctive sound. 
you'd think being such a huge fan of spaghetti westerns that in Euro westerns that I would have picked up on that. But no, you're right. It is a very western sounding theme. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that at all. But I could see this being used in a western. Sure. Yeah, it works. Sure. It works tremendously well. I mean, the the other thing to be said about this film, you know, apart from the Lee Cushing factor and so forth is if you're a Euro cult fanatic in the way that I am, uh, this movie's a dream because the, the group of people, not only in front of the camera, but also behind the camera, it's kind of an all-star lineup of people that are just, you know, synonymous with these types of films. Um, you were mentioning before about some of the other characters. I should mention uh, Helga Linné, uh, who is a German actress, but actually did a lot of Spanish movies. And uh, I guess she was kind of, you could say she was kind of the, the uh, well, the Spanish, but German. Yeah, she's German, but she's known for the Spanish movie. The Spanish genre, <laughs> Barbara Steele, I suppose you could call her because uh, she had that similar kind of very spooky slash sexy quality to her. Mm-hmm. Did a couple of films with Paul Nashie, including Horror Rises from the Tomb and The Mummy's Revenge. Um, oh, I love those movies oh, too, so yeah. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, also showed up in, in a variety of other genre films, including one with Sylvia Tortosa, who plays the Countess in this film. They did a movie for Armando de Osorio, the Blind Dead auteur movie called Laura Lee's Grasp, which is uh, another great film. Yeah, it's out there on Blu-ray. You know, pick it up if mm-hmm. you haven't seen it. But she showed up in a bunch of really interesting movies: Killer of the Dolls and Vampires Night Orgy, which is just one of the all-time great titles. Black <laughs> Candles, which is you know you have to see that one to believe it. You know, My Dear Killer, So Sweet, So Perverse, a lot of really really good stuff. She did a, a number of Euro spy films too, which is how I actually first yes. really started to fall in love with her. I'd seen her in other things, but when I saw. Uh, Special Mission Lady Chaplin. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, she's fantastic, and I I, I want to go on missions with her. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure we've all had that thought at one point or another. <laughs> well, you know, you she's, know. <laughs> uh, she's wonderful. She doesn't have a lot to do, but she does have that wonderful sequence where, you know, she's effectively seducing Peter Cushing, and then Christopher Lee comes in and totally screws everything up. <laughs> and, uh, it's one of my favorite scenes in the film. Um, the baggage man, of course, you know, the old faded baggage man is played by Victor Israel, who is kind of the Spanish Michael River, <laughs> I guess you could say, uh, or the Spanish. Oh, he's got that look, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, <laughs> or the Spanish Luciano Pagotzi slash Alan Collins, you know, um, the, the guy who shows up in a ton of movies. You don't know his name necessarily, but you know that look. He did a ton of these movies as well. And uh, uh, Alberto de Mendoza, who comes as close as anybody to stealing the movie from the three stars playing the role of Pajardoff, the monk, you know, mm-hmm. he is fantastic. And it has to be said, you know, because Paul Nashi was the big, you know, Spanish horror king at this time, that would have been a good role for him. I could actually see him playing that part, but I don't regret that the Mendoza played it because he played it exceptionally well. I should note too, he's dubbed on the English track by Robert Rietti, who is one of those incredibly prolific vocal actors that, um, well, if you've ever seen any of the James Bond movies, he dubbed uh, Adolfo Celli as Largo in Thunderball. He dubbed, uh, I think it was Tiger Tanaka in You Only Live Twice. You know, very, very familiar voice. And uh, Julio Pena, who plays the inspector, who's also quite wonderful, is dubbed by a very familiar uh, actor by the name of Roger Delgado, who played uh, the master on Doctor Who. It's got a great cast. It really does. Um, just everything about this film is is enjoyable and highly recommended. I, th- I think uh, if you're not getting that from me and Troy, you're not listening to this episode. Uh, 
This movie is highly recommended. Uh, I know we didn't talk a lot about the story, but, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because I feel like there's enough twists and turns to get people interested or keep people interested as the movie progresses. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a lot of wonderful moments in here. Uh, a lot of big moments in here, too, that are just great. A lot of amazing visuals. Uh, and I've already ranted and raved about the music, the performances. Is there anything else that you want to say about the film before we, we end this? No, not, not necessarily anything in particular. I mean, just to give a little shout out, I suppose, to the director, Eugenio Martin, who, um, you know, again, had, had had experience doing Spanish Westerns and so forth. Again, had done uh, Pancho Villa with Savalas, which, along with this movie, was a bargain video bin uh, staple back in the 80s. That's how I first saw both of these movies. Sure, me too. Me too. And, you know, he would also do a really uh, disturbing Spanish horror film after this called Candle for the Devil, which I highly recommend. So, yeah, this is. This is just one of those movies where it's kind of a lightning in a bottle thing. Everything just kind of came together. It works really, really well. It may not be as revered or respected a movie as, you know, again, Curse of Frankenstein or Dracula or some of the other films that uh, Lee and Cushing did together for Hammer. But in entertainment value, I just don't think it can be topped. I could not tell you how many times I've seen it. I can probably quote just about the whole film verbatim. And uh, one would think. That would mean I don't want to watch it ever again, but I could easily watch again tonight. I, I love it that much. Yeah, same here. I could pop it right in when we're getting when we're done here, you know. But yeah, my, my two watch pile is too big to to watch the same movie twice in one day. Yeah. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. I know what you mean. <laughs> Troy, I want to thank you for doing this, man. I, I know again, this is the second time we've recorded this, and I've been hitting save as we've been going. <laughs> As we've been talking here. So the audio is being saved one way or the other. This episode will get done and we'll get out. We're not going to lose this one. Um, Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, before your next dozen commentary tracks come out, people pick up Troy's books. Uh, Murder by Design and Assault on the System are the two newest books. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes as well as a link to his uh, Amazon page where you can pick up things like Splintered Visions or So Deadly Superverse uh, Volumes 1 and 2. So people, please check that out. Or if you want to know more about Mario Bava, Troy's got a good book about Bava out there too called The Haunted World of Mario Bava. Again, Monster Kid Radio, seal of approval. Well, thank you very much. I always appreciate a little plug. Anything else you want to mention before we... Well, I suppose you since we're talking about Christopher Lee, I should mention, although it's not out yet, it is available to order and everything has been announced, so it's okay for me to mention it. Uh, anybody interested in the kind of Euro phase of Christopher Lee's career, be sure to check out the uh, Christopher Lee box set that's coming from Severin. Um, it's going to be out in May, I think uh, May 25th, which is just two days shy of what would have been the great man's 99th birthday. Um, contains several different films that he made in Italy and Germany, and, uh, you know, uh, it's quite a selection. And I'm on uh, audio commentary duty with Nathaniel Thompson from Mondo Digital on two of the films, Castle of the Living Dead and The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, which you and I talked about, uh, ooh, I think, about four years ago at this point. I'm so glad to hear that. I, when I saw the box set, the first thing I looked at was the price and then realized there's no way I'm going to be able to pick that up right now. But then the second thing I did was look to see who was involved in the commentary tracks. And if I didn't see your name somewhere on there, I was going to think someone's just missing the boat. Well, I would have to agree with you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I there's can't, that Christopher Lee. There's that it, Christopher Lee it right is, there. It is. It is. No, I mean, you're not going to find somebody who loves him more than I do. Um, yeah, you know, uh, and to 
to talk about, especially Torture Chamber, Dr. Sadism, which has been such a huge, although I don't like that title. That's a title that was sort of affixed to the movie in, in the late 70s, I think, when it came to TV. Uh, mm-hmm. Prior to that, it had been called The Blood Demon in the U.S., which is you know, arguably a slightly better, slightly less lurid title. We talked about that when I had John. I mean, that, yeah. that title turned me off from this movie for so long. Yeah, I was like, I'm- yeah it, sounds, it sounds like it's going to be a whole lot worse than what it is. It's actually a rather genteel movie in some respects, but don't let that put you off either. It has a wonderful atmosphere. So very, very proud to be on commentary duty on that one. I've, I've done several Lee movies at this point, but I always love having an opportunity to talk about him and, and kind of try to shoot down some of the misconceptions about him that I think, um, you know, sometimes he gets a little bit of a raw deal uh, in some circles because of, of certain ideas that, you know, that people have about him and so forth. But the price tag is hefty, I would admit, you know, in terms of uh, any one-time purchase. But when you look at the amount of content and the amount of films in that box and so forth, it actually is very reasonably priced. And uh, I say that not because I get any kickbacks. I do not. If it sells a thousand copies or sells no copies, it doesn't affect me. So, <laughs> But I think as a Lee, Lee fans would definitely want to check that set out. I think it's it's a great price for what you're getting, for sure. I will agree with you there. It's just with, yeah. <laughs> I've got a divorce I, and, and I'm dealing with, and I got to save up to find a place to move. So uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I can't, Priorities. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Priorities. I get it. It's one of those things that, uh, yeah. Yeah. If, if it were, um, you know, an ideal scenario, if I could uh, make a set available to you for free, I'd be happy to do so. <laughs> I, well, I wasn't asking for a handout, but I appreciate it, <laughs> but I'll make sure there's a link to that as well in the show notes. Uh, as of right now, it looks like you can only pre-order it through Severin mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, so Hop on over there and, and pick that up and listen to Troy and a whole bunch of other uh, qualified folks talk about these movies a lot better than I ever will. Again, Troy, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. And we'll have you back on at some point. I'm sure there's more movies for us to talk about. Oh, I'm sure there's plenty, uh, plenty of uh, things that would cross over between the two of us. So I'll be happy to come back anytime. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for sticking around, hanging out with us this week, and taking a ride on the Horror Express with Troy and I. I am surprised it took me to the end of the episode to say something about taking a ride on the Horror Express. You'd think I would have opened with something like that. Anyway, I had a great time with this episode. Kenny segment, top-notch, and I can't get enough Ultraman and Ultra Q in my life, so Mark, thank you for all of that. Troy, once again, thanks for taking the time to talk about this movie with me twice. It was a great, great time. You can find out everything you need to know about this episode of Monster Kid Radio in the show notes over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. You're going to find links to Troy's books. You're going to find links to where you can pick up your own copy of the Ultra Q Blu-ray collection. You're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here. And you're going to find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter Also, you'll find our contact information over there. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Basically what I'm saying is that monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to want to hang out between episodes. That's where everything is, including 
an announcement about what's coming up next week. But as always, I'm going to spoil it and let you know now what's happening on episode 513. Stephen D. Sullivan is coming back to the show, and we're going to be talking about a movie from 1933 called Supernatural. Yeah, I actually just recorded that conversation with Steve earlier today. I had a blast. I'm actually dreading editing it, that conversation, because I know that he and I went way off topic talking about, of all things, Lovecraft for an extended period of time. And there were a lot of laughs to be had between the two of us. So you know what? Next week's episode might be a little bit more loosey-goosey than normal. We'll see. You'll have to come back in seven days to find out for yourself. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on commercial no derivatives, a 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Panic Buy. That is owned by the band Los Ditos and copyright 2021. The EP actually just came out yesterday on Wednesday, brand new. Go check him out over at losdidos.bandcamp.com and that's L-O-S-D-E-D-O-S.bandcamp.com. You can also find him on Instagram and Facebook. Just check him out. Throw him a little love. Listen to their music. It's good stuff. Also, in the Saturday stream, I'm going to be showing one of their music videos too. My name is Derek Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we talk about the movie Supernatural with Stephen E. Sullivan. Ciao. Uh-huh.